Hi, this is Dr. Chuck Betters of Mark Inc. Ministries. At Mark Inc. Ministries, we produce and distribute free of charge resources that address life crises that are often suffered in isolation. This interview that you are about to hear is part of our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library. Each of those resources is an interview with someone whose life journey has been more difficult because of sudden sorrow or long-term pain. Some of our topics are the loss of a loved one, adultery, breast cancer, autism, as well as a special series for military families that we call Coming Home from War. I am especially moved by the interview in this resource where Sharon and I talk with a family who has lived with bipolar disorder since the early days of their marriage. This couple and their son share intimately their struggles to deal with the challenges of bipolar illness every minute of every day. I know their story will help you better understand the challenges of mental illness. I'm interested in knowing how we got to this point how you and your husband and your son have said, yes, we want to do this. Well, I was really the one who was enthusiastic from the beginning because ever since I was diagnosed and then began to have a little success in the way I was treating it, I've just had a heart for women in particular who were dealing with bipolar. And I offer or have offered many, many times to different people who were reportedly going through it to counsel with them or talk with them about it. And people are very private. I've been disappointed that I haven't been able to share with more people. You know, it's always something I've wanted to do. So this seemed like a great opportunity to share with people who wanted to listen in the privacy of their own homes. How about you, Lee? We had a series of false starts on my part because I wasn't really sure that I wanted to do this interview. Growing up, my family's pattern was you don't really talk very much about how you feel and you just be quiet until you can't keep it inside anymore and then there's an eruption and then you move on and deal with it the best you can and sweep it back under the rug as soon as possible. So my way of dealing with, with things like this is often to not talk about it. And I, I find that I don't talk to friends or coworkers about this hardly at all. So we went back and forth, and I would tentatively agree to do it. And I said, I don't know. And then I said, well, how about Spencer and you? Because now that he's newly an adult, uh, maybe it would make sense for you and he to do the interview. And, and then he convinced me. You know, this is not a story that two of us need to tell. It's a story that's involved all three of us in a very profound way. You had some guilt. You said, I, I didn't handle this perfectly. I'm really ashamed. And Spencer was instrumental there. He said, this is not about your perfection in handling something, but this is about God's glory shining through our imperfection in spite of our imperfection. Spencer, why did you agree to do this? Well, it wasn't until a couple years ago that I really feel like I came to terms with my mother's illness and really found peace. I think growing up a lot, I had some anger and I didn't really understand why my mom was going through the things she was going through. And I also didn't know how to relate to her. And I certainly didn't have the patience that I needed to relate with her. So it wasn't until I became an adult and around when I turned 18 or 19 or so that I really became challenged to seek to show patience and love towards her. 
everywhere, even when it's difficult. So um, when I found that this opportunity came about, I was excited because I feel like I have dealt with it personally and I want to be able to share whatever I can with other people who are dealing with it and show that there's hope that things get better from where they start with this illness. Why don't we talk a little bit about the illness itself? What is bipolar? What are the types and symptoms of bipolar? Well, it used to be called manic depression, which is a little more descriptive. This illness involves mood swings between high points and low points. Some people get much higher than others, and some people get much lower than others. They're just natural norms that are very unique to each individual who has it. Some people uh, stay in this high phase for a day, some for six months. So the cycling is very unique as well. Can you explain, as her husband, what those high points looked like? How did they flesh out? How did those low points flesh out? And maybe, Spencer, you can jump in here as well. Yeah, I think in her experience, she's been on the low points much more frequently and for much longer periods of time than the high points. But the high points are characterized by lots of energy, lots of ideas, the tendency to spend more money. And then, of course, the low points, it's almost like you have a a fixed amount of energy. And when, when that energy runs out, then you pay the price for that period of heightened energy that you had. So depression often follows a period of heightened energy and heightened mood. In her case as well, there was an element of seasonal disorder mixed in with that. So in the fall, uh, her moods would naturally start to, to go down, and in the winter, even worse. And then summertime for a long period was characterized by more heightened activity. But it's a shifting disease, so the way she treats it now isn't the same she treated it 10 years ago or even three years ago. So it's it's a constantly moving target, which means you have to deal with it every day. It's not a disease you can get on some medicine, stay on it for two years and not make any adjustments. I mean, she's dealing with this every day. You have to be very vigilant. You have to take into account stresses in your life. If you're more stressed, you're more likely to respond with a shift in your mood. There are all kinds of ways that you can try to respond to shifts in moods, whether it's medicine or other kinds of more natural treatments, exercise. But it's just, it is a constant vigilance. To add on what my dad was saying, the high points for me as I was growing up, when my mom was going through the more manic phases of bipolar, to me, I was I felt more smothered during those times and like I had too much attention. Probably part of that is also because I'm an only child and that's natural, but it would, it would, there would be periods where um, I would feel like I couldn't do anything without being watched. And then just like that, the switch would be flipped and then um, she wouldn't want much to do with me. And the, the lower times were more characterized by her being irritable. And I recognized as much as I could that that, that wasn't her, but it's definitely a side effect of the disorder. And during those times, it's, it's definitely difficult to realize that the person is saying things that they don't necessarily mean. But it's hard for me to find that balance of, okay, who is my mom? You know, is she this person who's really excited and, and energetic, or is she low and irritable? I guess my conclusion was that she's somewhere in between. 
And that confusion was one that plagued me as well. I was asking, who am I? What are my real attitudes toward this person or this situation in life? Because one day I feel quite differently toward it than the next. At what point did you seek help? Well, my descent into bipolar, it was very slow. I started out as a colicky baby, an anxious, kind of depressed child. You know, it took me a long time to seek help. My depression just grew worse and worse over my young adulthood. I went through some very bad stresses, going through my parents' divorce, trying to please them. They are both very difficult personalities. My mother is narcissistic. And uh, if, if you look it up and read about it, she seems to be what they would call borderline personality very clingy, very self-centered, believing that people were created to serve her, to take care of her, not aware of proper boundaries between people, violating others' boundaries, especially mine, it seemed. And then my dad, on the other hand, was um, very much different from that. He was kind of antisocial. He had nothing emotionally to give, couldn't connect with people. I was, as I said, very confused trying to please them both and really not getting from them emotionally what I needed. After I got married, my depression grew. I had this child, and I I could tell during my pregnancy that something was very wrong. People tried to tell me it was hormones. I knew it was much worse. I was scared that I would hurt the baby that I would be an awful parent, I couldn't sleep, I couldn't eat much of the time. Then things got worse after the baby came. I went into an immediate manic state where I was just overly elated about his arrival, and then gradually that kind of dissipated. I couldn't sleep over the course of a year and a half. Uh, My moods became more and more depressed, agitated, And it was sometime, maybe halfway through that year and a half, that someone suggested I had postpartum. And it was then that I sought treatment for postpartum. But I didn't know what I know now, which is many women experience this natural progression from postpartum into bipolar. There are doctors now who are more aware of that and can help women not end up bipolar. So I sought treatment for postpartum, never imagining that I had a long-term mental illness ahead of me. So when did you finally realize that this is beyond postpartum depression? Well, the doctor who treated me at that time was just giving me a little something to sleep, and it wasn't helping. She just wasn't very educated about how to help me. And things got worse and worse. My mind became just entangled in obsessive thoughts, dark obsessive thoughts about how did this happen to me? What caused this? What caused this? What caused this? I had overwhelming guilt about what a terrible mother I was. I wasn't bonding with my child. What was this going to do to my child? And finally, it was my decision to go into a mental hospital when my baby was a year and a half old. And it was while I was in the hospital, I was given a medicine that accidentally triggered me into euphoria again. 
And the staff and my doctor decided based on that that I was bipolar, and they announced it to me, and I was angry. And I said, you say I'm bipolar? Let me tell you what I think about you. But they were patient with me, and I had good insurance, and they allowed me to just take a break from any medication and sit for a week in that hospital and think about how I felt and what decision I wanted to make. I'm so grateful for having that week because it allowed me to make the decision for myself to start the medicine. I was beginning to feel these tiny waves of emotion, tiny highs and lows, and I said, well, I'll try the medicine. I'm convinced that that had something to do with my ability in the long term later to be compliant because I had made that first decision. By the way, during that stay in the hospital, the doctors told me that they didn't really know what was wrong with her and that she may end up in a state hospital when she was discharged from the mental health facility. And there I was with a year and a half old baby and I was hearing that potentially my wife would end up in a state mental hospital. How old were you then? 28. Such a young family, such a young family to be experiencing such trauma and such awful news. How did you react to that? I was really horrified by it all. I didn't know anything about this, and the doctors didn't seem to know anything about this. And she, at first, was very unwilling to listen to the doctors. And I just said, well, you need to take the medication. We have to do something here. I'm being told that you could wind up in a state mental hospital, and I don't think that's a very good option for you. So it was terrifying. What was it like for you as you started observing the evolution from postpartum to bipolar? What did it look like? Put us into your home at that time and tell us what it looked like. I was very confused, especially when she was pregnant and she wasn't eating anything. She wasn't sleeping. And at first I was worried about her, but I was also very worried about her baby. And I just didn't understand. Why, why can't you eat something? Why can't you sleep and take care of yourself. I don't understand any of this emotional stuff that you're talking about. Because I'd never really witnessed that sort of thing from her. But then when she got pregnant and these unexplainable things started happening, it was very confusing. I was very anxious myself over that. And then it just came to a head after Spencer was born, and somewhere in the year and a half range, I remember night after night, she was up and not sleeping, and one night she just said, take me to a hospital. I said, okay, let's go. Let's go to the hospital. Because I'd had enough, I I realized that we needed help about the same time she did, so that's when we loaded up the car and went. Did you have anyone to talk to during that period, or did you feel this is a private matter, I want to protect my wife, I don't want her to be shamed by any of this? Fortunately, we had a very nice family who had been sitting with Spencer. He was very young, and she was working. She had been working in a part-time job, and I had a new job here in the state and had a very demanding job. It wasn't like I could stay home and take care of him, so we were fortunate enough to have this family who had a home daycare, and if I had to stay at work late and catch up with work I'd missed, then they were great to keep Spencer even if I were two hours late. And I've told her, I don't know how many times, you know, what a, what a role she played. She knew what was going on, and she was just very graceful about it. And I don't know what we would have done without their support at that time. 
But other than them, I didn't have people to talk to. We had conflict with with parents who were trying to micromanage how I was taking care of her. And they didn't like the fact that I put her in the hospital. And and it, it was not a pleasant situation with her parents either. People that I've talked to who have walked similar pathways, they cannot describe adequately how they feel, how they felt, and even the neutralization of feelings at times, too. Was there any time where you thought, I can't live like this anymore, I won't live like this, I just want to die? Well, that was one of the things they asked when we came to the hospital was, was I suicidal? Did I have a plan? And... I can't say that I was suicidal, but I had a fantasy of just taking off in the car and going to California and leaving everything behind me. It was definitely something that I didn't plan to follow through on, but it just arose out of, as you say, a horrible psychic pain. And I always tell people trying to describe it, it is a pain that is completely unrelenting. It is a pain that you are aware of seemingly every nanosecond. If you think of physical injuries, you can think, oh, I'm feeling a twinge of pain every three seconds, for example. But this never let up. And for me, the depths of depression were most often experienced as guilt. I felt extreme condemnation for everything I had done and was doing. Was that condemnation from others? Did you feel judged by others? Or was this, were you thinking, this is what they must think of me? Or was this your own condemnation? Well, I had grown up with a lot of condemnation. And I think depression just heightened that a hundredfold. What causes bipolar It is generally considered to be a genetic disorder. As I look back in my family, there are a number of people I can point to who definitely suffered from depression or had bipolar-like personalities. I'm the first I know of who was actually diagnosed, but, you know, I know of a couple suicides, for example. So it's considered primarily genetic, and then it's also considered that it's triggered by stressful events in one's life. So what you're saying is that the thinking is there are some genetic factors, and you might have a tendency toward that, but deeply stressful events could be what brings it to the forefront. Or someone could struggle with some of these mood swings and some of the symptoms, but never, say, cross over unless something terrible happens in their lives. Right. Or more dramatically, you can be fully genetically predisposed and never have any symptoms if stresses haven't brought you over that threshold. You were trying to describe the the emotional pain. You mentioned physical pain. You know, you can measure physical pain. And sometimes I think about if you're not, if you don't have a cast on, if you're not hemorrhaging, if you're not bleeding out, People don't have much sympathy for wounds that they cannot see. Do you feel that way about the general population? I think that's very true. There are a lot of illnesses that are considered legitimate in comparison to mental illnesses, which people have very different ideas about. And I I would love to become an advocate for the mentally ill. I would love to help bring about greater acceptance and understanding. One thing that seems to be a point of controversy, maybe not as much now as it was when you were first diagnosed, is the use of medication 
for mental illness. You know, if you have cancer, well, let's do chemo. If you have a broken arm, let's put a cast on your arm. But mental illness, you just need to change your attitude. What do you think about that kind of statement? Well, I spent the early part of my life trying to change my attitude. I feel strongly, as I've taken different medications in treating the bipolar, that I may want to feel better. I, I may want to emotionally mature in some ways that my illness just won't let me do until I take the right medicine. The people that over the years I've had the opportunity to deal with who have been diagnosed with the bipolar disorder, many of them don't want to take their medicines. Many of them are of the opinion that the side effects of the medications are worse than than the illness itself. And obviously, there's give and take and there's play in there that you have to adjust the medications, etc. And the people I've had the opportunity to talk to who struggle with this, they are sometimes unwilling to take the medications, which of course then increases the problem. What advice would you give to those who are struggling right now with that idea that they don't want to take the medications? Legitimately, yes, there are some side effects that are unpleasant and you have to talk to your doctor about it and try new medicines, but try very, very hard to stay on medicine because it's your only hope. If you get off medicine, it's likely that the area of your brain affected by the disorder will increase in size and you will require more medication. But there are two kinds of bipolar, possibly three. The third is sort of undefined. I am classified as bipolar two, where I stay more on the depressed side. There's bipolar one that stays more on the manic side. My kind of bipolar tends to be more compliant because we can more easily see that the medicine helps us. We've been depressed all our lives. The medicine makes us feel better. It brings us up. But people who are used to being manic and are comfortable with that kind of energy level often don't want to be brought down. I know that we had some real struggles finding the right medication. We started out in such a deep hole with her illness that anything was an improvement over where she was because it wasn't sustainable, the condition she was in. So the first medication she was put on was one that had been around for 50 years, and it just drained her personality away so that she was zombie-like and lost a lot of her personality. We refer to those years now as the years the locust had eaten because she wasn't herself. And then newer medications came along. We found a new doctor, and she just sprang to life after we put her on a different medication. And, if, you know, there have been various other changes in medication over the years, and the general trend seems to be they're getting better all the time. And, and she's now on a medication. If you had told me 20 years ago that she would be functioning as well as she is now, I wouldn't have believed it. It would, it would have taken a miracle in my mind to bring her to this point. It's not perfect, but she's so far better than she was. Here we are today, 20 years past the diagnosis, and you mentioned that there is significant change in how she is today compared to where she was then, and I am sure that in between there were ups and downs during that 20-year period. As you see it, how is she functioning today, 20 years later, with the medications that she's on? 
She's functioning better today than I've seen her in the last 20 years. And it's, I'm really happy to say that. Recently at a family gathering, we had a lot of her extended family there. And a couple of people told me, this is the best I've seen her in I don't know when. Her mind is sharp. And it wasn't always that way. On some of those medicines, her mind was just very slow. And it just, it was very frustrating as a spouse when you have a conversation one day and then the next day she doesn't remember you had the conversation or she's not able to keep up with your thought process when you're having a conversation. But today her mind is sharp. As I mentioned, she still has to work at it daily to to make sure she's eating right, to make sure she's getting the right amounts of of sunlight, but she's done a fantastic job managing the disease herself. You can't just put it on autopilot. It's not that kind of disease. You can't set it and let it go and think that it's going to work out. She's been a very active participant in her health care. One thing that I've been really pleased with is after 18 years of not being able to work outside the home, I was able to take a part-time job in January and that marked for me a significant milestone. Um, But in general, I feel like I have the energy for more friendships. I have the energy to be more creative. And of course, these things kind of feed on themselves. You know, the more creative I am, the better spirits I'm in. The more I can reach out socially and give to people. I also do volunteer work. The more fed I am spiritually and emotionally. Spencer, this has been going on in your mom for 20 years. And of course, uh, what she said earlier was that it began with postpartum when you were born. So you have had the opportunity to observe her for 20 years, consciously, probably 15 of those years. Can you take us on a little journey of what it was like for you? And at what point did you look at your family and look at your mom in particular and say, okay, there's something wrong here? My earliest memories were being at daycare. I didn't really understand why I had to spend so much time in daycare at that point. I think I'd heard something about bipolar. I thought it was a type of bear. I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that I spent a lot of time with my dad. And during my early childhood, I became very close with my dad because he was the one that was more stable and more around and and more able to give of his time um, to hang out with me. But definitely, I had a tough time connecting with my mom for a lot of my childhood because a lot of the time it seemed like she was more focused on um, adjusting her medicines and making sure that she feels as good as she can. She was more focused on that than she was me, at least it seemed to me sometimes. Um, And it was hard for me to see that it was actually necessary for her to spend so much time thinking about her medicine so that she could love me better. I'm convinced that if she didn't work so hard at, at feeling well, she wouldn't have had anything to give me. But it turned out to actually be the selfless thing. But it was really hard for me to see that as a kid. You know, I wanted the attention. I wanted to feel listened to and, and cared for. And I definitely wasn't always the center of attention as I wanted to be. You know, there there have been peaks and valleys, and ultimately, I've kind of been confronted with the fact that I need to love her regardless of how she's treating me and how she's feeling. Love is not just something that reciprocates what's been given to you. Loving her is is saying, I'm going to choose to love you and, and honor you regardless of how you are feeling or acting in your life. I know that you're my mother and I'm, I'm going to love you. And once I was old enough and conscious enough to make that decision, 
definitely became a lot easier. And also around that time, I started to see her getting on the medicines that she's on now. And that really helped a lot in her being more constant in her moods. I would say um, growing up with a mother who's bipolar is one of the hardest things that I've dealt with in my life. As a kid, if you'd asked me about it, I would have been angry about it. Now I look back and say that it was a really good thing for me to deal with and a blessing in disguise because you learn so much about love and sacrifice and patience through such a hard thing. You are a senior now studying math and economics. As you look back on your teenage years, which most people would agree are very critical years in shaping a young man's personality, what was the toughest thing you had to deal with in the day-to-day aspects of you and your mom? One of the main things that all teenagers want is freedom and independence. My mom was definitely more of the smothering type during those years, and I felt like every action was scrutinized or sometimes criticized, and it it was kind of hard for me to feel like I could breathe during those years. Looking back, I know it was was my problem because I I probably wanted more independence than I deserved at that age. But still, it it was hard to deal with her treatment of me and maintain a peaceful existence around the house. Did you observe the dynamic of their relationship and what pain it was causing him? I observed a lot of frustration on Spencer's part and for the reasons that that he described. In some of her low periods, she could be very critical and difficult to deal with. And in some of her higher periods, she could be smothering. And I observed a lot of frustration from him. Oh, Mom, why why can't you just, you know, give me some space? Or why do you have to criticize everything I do? Or, um, you know, things like that. It was um, friction between them. And I wasn't sure what my role was in, in um, helping to diffuse that friction. I probably didn't do as much as I should have during those years. What would you now, 20 years later, what would you advise a parent who is dealing with uh, bipolar in his or her spouse, as far as the relationship to the child is concerned, what would you say to a dad in a similar situation that you found yourself in when it comes to raising your son? I think it, it's just critical to form a really strong bond with your with your child because I can only imagine if you had one bipolar parent and one absentee parent I don't think the child would have a chance of turning out well. The child needs somebody to cling to. Frankly, I needed to cling to him, too, because I I needed support. He's been a great source of joy in my life. For those times when she wasn't there for me, she was unavailable for whatever reason, he was there for me, too. So I think there can be such a mutually beneficial relationship between a parent and a child. When you hear your mom talking about this disease and you hear that she believes that there is a genetic component to it, does that concern you? Yes. Yeah, I'd be lying if I said that wasn't one of my biggest fears because I've seen the pain that comes with bipolar and I've, I've seen that firsthand my whole life. And uh, one of my biggest fears is that I'll end up kind of in the same boat. And also, I think as I was growing up, Sometimes I was analyzed by my mom because I know that she cared so much about me and she was so concerned about me that she wanted to make sure that if I was bipolar that I'd be treated from as young an age as possible. I remember when I was in about seventh grade or so, I, I went to this psychiatrist 
Well, at least at that point, they said I didn't have bipolar. But I know since then, I have had a few periods of depression in my life. I don't think I have bipolar, but it's still a fear. Like she said, you know, a period of great stress can trigger it if it's in your genes. And so it's incentive for me to, to try to take care of myself as the best I can and, and not experience um, anything that'll trigger any bipolar in my genes. Right. What does it mean to take care of yourself if you are concerned that you might be pre-bipolar? Well, number one, guard your sleep. Guard your sleep. Every bipolar person needs to hear that and everybody who thinks they might be bipolar. That's a universal exercise. Watch your stress. Eat well. And... um, You know, go to your doctor and ask questions. Um, Do careful research on the Internet, consulting reputable sources as best you can. What kind of a doctor would somebody who suspects they are pre-bipolar do you go to? Your family physician? Is it? Who is it? Who do you go to? Well, unless your symptoms are really extreme, you are suffering some some significant disruption because of moods in your normal routines. You would probably start out with your family doctor. And most family doctors, because there is a shortage of psychiatrists, can prescribe drugs that, like mood-stabilizing drugs that bipolar people would take. Um, but they can also choose to refer you to a psychiatrist who would have more experience prescribing and diagnosing. They might suggest you see a therapist who would uh, talk with you about your emotions. You know, in my case, I wish there had been a professional I could have seen who could really focus on postpartum and preventing that from becoming bipolar. You should not get so invested in a doctor. If you think you're not being treated properly or well, don't stay there or at least get a second opinion because Elizabeth's first doctor, we stayed with her a long time and and we got some very bad advice from her first doctor. And I went in for a consultation once, for example, with her doctor to see, you know, things weren't going that well. And I, and I just wanted to, I wanted to hear from the doctor what she was saying about Elizabeth's condition and and I explained the frustration I was feeling and the and how difficult this was to process all of this and the doctor's response to me was well why don't you just leave why don't you just pack up and go I said I don't consider that an option and then that to me was the beginning of the end of that doctor so you had a doctor the doctor you were depending on say why don't you just leave your wife were there other people in your life who encouraged you to abandon her? Yes. I had some friends who said subtly and not so subtly, um, well, you know, you're really putting up with a lot. I'm surprised you're still around, which is a, a way of saying uh, you, maybe you should consider leaving. That's the way I interpreted it. And I had some people who were more direct than that and were extremely supportive and wanted to help, and you have to be careful when you're in a lonely state. There's a lot of loneliness as a spouse of a bipolar person, and you're vulnerable. You're very vulnerable to the to anyone who wants to show you attention or seems sympathetic. And there are people out there who want to keep you company and, and want to tell you that you should maybe consider a change. Were you ever tempted to walk away? 
No, not not seriously tempted because I I took my vows seriously, and when I said that I would stay with her through sickness and in health, that's that's what I vowed to do and that's what I intended to do. Are there days where I wanted to leave? Absolutely. Were there days where I seriously considered it? No. But there were there were a lot of those days in there. When you talk about the days that where you wanted to leave, I mean, describe what your marriage was like. How was your marriage? Would you say our marriage is quite different from what is portrayed as a healthy marriage? And, and that word healthy is a relative term. There were a lot of days that I just wanted to leave it all behind because I didn't feel like I had the support at home that I needed, that she wasn't capable of giving what I needed. And, you know, those those doubts creep in where you think, you know, I deserve somebody who who's going to be able to be an equal in this relationship, an equal partner, and meet me at my level. I married a woman who was very close to me intellectually. And then she, you know, the years that she was on this medicine, we couldn't have an intelligent conversation many times. And that that was very, very frustrating. That's some that was one of my highest needs is to have someone I could really talk to. And that's what that's what initially attracted me to her was not only was she a sweet person, but she was very smart and, and we had great conversations and and you know, it was a it was definitely one of the things that bonded us together. And then when that was taken away from us, it uh, really left a big hole in our relationship. How did you fill that hole? I think I invested a lot of myself in my work, which resulted in success for me at work, but it also, maybe it's not the best way to spend your life, working too much and putting too much of yourself into your job. Maybe I didn't handle it as well as I should have. I I coped the best I could, you know, and as I said, I, I invested a lot of time in, in Spencer as well, and he was a great comfort to me, but I didn't have a lot of support from family or friends. Elizabeth, did you realize how lonely your husband was or how your marriage would appear to be very broken because of your illness? He would tell me from time to time that he was hurting, and my empathy was just very limited. I was so self-focused because of the illness. I genuinely felt bad, but I just wasn't focused on him or the marriage for very long at a, at a time. Did you go to anyone for counseling for your marriage? Did you have any kind of therapy to help you rebuild that relationship? No, I think we both believed that the fate of the marriage depended on me treating my illness. We thought only if I could improve could our marriage improve. Spencer, did you observe anything in their marriage, their marital relationship to each other that troubled you as a teenager? Well, I knew that fighting was, you know, a normal part of relationships to some extent. So I didn't know if what I was seeing was abnormal or if it was normal. And I think for the most part, I had a very high opinion of my parents' relationship. Um, I definitely saw a ton of patience in my dad. I knew from a young age that there was pain in my mom's illness. And 
I've always really respected my dad for sticking around because I knew that he sacrificed things for my mom and for me. So I was always really, really impressed with my dad's attitude and, and his patience. And I, I knew that things were difficult, especially as I got older. I knew that conflicts arose probably more often than in most marital relationships over my mom's illness. But I think definitely over the past few years, uh, that has improved as well. So we have seen some restoration, but as my dad has said, it, it is a daily struggle and it's by no means perfect, but it's better. What advice would you give to families who have a family member that has bipolar? I would advise them to put yourself in their shoes and and try to think about how scary it would be to be mentally unstable and not in control of your thoughts and emotions and, and try to have that empathy to understand just a little bit That's not going to help you understand completely what they're going through. But we have to try to be understanding towards these people because, you know, they're in our lives for a reason and we need to love them. You know, they need our love and and we need to love them as well. I I also try to think about my own flaws when I get too prideful and, and angry with my mom and think, you know, I also have issues in my life. I'm I'm not perfect by any means. And that helps me to have more patience with her. When I realize, you know, I also require patience and her issues are different from mine, but we all have those struggles and I'm supposed to love her. So I need to, I need to fight to have that love in my life. I've often wondered, maybe I needed this for some reason. And it's the last thing I ever wanted, but maybe I needed this in my life for some reason to help me grow as a person. Or maybe it was the only way I was going to learn patience because I'm not a naturally patient person. So I'm hoping that someday I'll understand why this was part of my life for all these years. There is a very strong element of faith in your family, in all three of you. You have a strong faith in Christ, and I know that you have been part of the church for most of your life. And I want to ask all three of you what role your faith played in dealing with the pain that came about as the result of this illness. As I mentioned before, a lot of the time during my childhood, I I had a lot of anger towards my mom, and I really struggled with wondering why were these things happening and how I could possibly find the patience in my heart to to love her. And I ultimately ended up finding out that I, I couldn't find that in myself. And that actually led me to kind of search for fulfillment in a variety of things in high school and even into the beginning of college a little bit, um, because I, I kind of knew that my relationship with my parents wouldn't bring me fulfillment. And I, I soon found out that relationships with girls wouldn't bring me the satisfaction that I longed for. My grades wouldn't bring me that satisfaction. I was valedictorian in my graduating class, but I, I still felt empty. And I was captain of two sports teams and I felt empty. And I ended up kind of at a loss, you know, because I felt like I had nothing, even though a lot of people would tell me that I had a lot in my life. It wasn't until I realized that I really, I need God in every aspect of my life. I need the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. I need that relationship with God in my life for fulfillment. Nothing else is going to satisfy me. Nothing else will drive me and give my life worth and meaning. Once that transformation kind of started happening in my freshman year of college, and I I started to take my faith seriously in pursuing God in this relationship, I kind of came to a point where I realized you know, I need to love my mom as Christ has loved me. Like that's it. That's a command, and it's 
it's not easy and I and I can't find that love in my heart which is where I was trying to find it for so long because it's not in my heart naturally and I needed that from God I started praying that God would fill me with the patience that I would need it didn't happen overnight and it still hasn't happened completely but he started to change my heart and make me see how sinful I am and how undeserving of forgiveness I am before God and then going from there and seeing how much grace God has to forgive me. I just, I couldn't keep holding things against my mom when I realized how much grace God has had to have for me. So it's it's completely transformed my life and, and how I view the situation with my mom. Elizabeth, could you see this transformation in your son? Could you see something happening? Definitely. He just made this amazing transformation from the time he was in his late high school years to the time he was halfway through his freshman year in college. And I think what really touched my heart when he became serious about his faith was that he suddenly had his friends uh, praying for our relationship, and he had told them about my illness, which was really humbling. But I thought to myself, you know, if he's having these people pray for me, then I'd better shape up, and I'd better (laughs) become less of a micromanager and less annoying to him and I had better cons- I had better give him the respect that he deserves as a maturing young man. I think uh, two two aspects of my faith have been critical in this journey. I first came to Christ when I was around 21, but I started feeling the pangs when I was about 18. I started having fears of what happens to you after you die, and I had no answers until Elizabeth came into my life and uh, and helped me think through those answers and, and actually led me to Christ. This is translated into hope for me. I was at that time, fearful, very fearful of dying and in the, the afterlife. And now I, I read things in the Bible about there someday there will be no more pain and no more tears, and this is all going to be over. And on many days, I look forward to that time now, and I don't fear that anymore. I'm perfectly at peace with, with the concept that I'm going to die and I'm going to be in a place where there's no pain. The other aspect is God has been faithful to me. And even in the worst times, I can look back. And, and time and again, um, He has been faithful. And that builds my faith. When I can look back in my life and say, do you remember this time? Or do you remember that time? Or this period of our lives that was so horrible? He provided a way out. And so when things are bad, I know that He'll do the same again. Sharon, you and I have spent uh, all of our adult life ministering in the church over 45 years now. And uh, we've watched Christians come and go. We've cried with people. We've laughed with people. We've experienced probably just about every range of emotion you can think of. And in preparation for this particular interview, you came across some things that were very troubling to both of us, specifically the church's attitude toward mental illness in general and how the church responds how they treat people, et cetera. So why don't you share a little bit of that with us? Well, LifeWay Research did a survey of people about their attitude toward mental illness. And the statistics are quite revealing about attitudes in faith-based organizations and churches. They learned that a third of Americans and nearly half of evangelical fundamentalist or born-again Christians believe prayer and Bible study alone can overcome serious mental illness. 
But what's intriguing is that the survey also found that most Americans, 68%, would feel welcome in church if they were mentally ill. 35% agree with the statement, with just Bible study and prayer alone, people with serious mental illness like depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia could overcome mental illness. 50% of those 18 to 29 years old say prayer and Bible study could overcome mental illness. What's interesting is that number falls to less than 30% for those who are 55 to 64. Evangelical, fundamentalist, or born-again Christians, 48%, agree that prayer and scripture study alone can overcome mental illness. And on the other hand, only 27% of other Americans agree. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we concluded along with those doing this study is that the church universal is ill-equipped to um, help people with any kind of mental illness, uh, suffering from depression. And we talked in this interview about the use of medication and things like that. So these people are saying, you can do this without medication. Just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and pray a lot. And if you don't get better, you have a faith issue. There's something wrong with you. When Rick Warren, the very well-known, nationally, internationally known pastor, when his son Matthew committed suicide, the topic of mental illness became a topic of national conversation. And one of the conclusions that many Christian leaders are coming to is, number one, we need to stop hiding mental illness. Secondly, the, the local congregation should be a safe place for those who struggle Thirdly, we should not be afraid of medicine. And fourthly, we need to end the shame. And we are so grateful to your family for taking this step to say, this is an illness and there are ways to find purpose and meaning and to find stability. It's hard work. There's a lot of hard work and it's daily Every day, uh, as you say, the work is there for you to do. That's the work of, of finding that level path. Elizabeth, I cannot tell you how grateful I am for your desire to allow God to use your story to bring hope and redemption to other people. I remember when you first approached me, you said, maybe my story can be the side of hope. And that's what we've heard in your story. And I would love for you to just share how your faith has helped you in this journey. Well, when I was in the hospital and truly experiencing one of my euphoric highs, I sought a religious explanation. Briefly, I thought of myself as a miracle-working saint. I thought I had been imbued with special divine powers. That was probably one of the few delusional times I had. Then I thought I was a martyr. And then as my mood fell dramatically, I began to question God and to try to figure out his role in all the confusion in my life and to beg for solace. Some of the workers at the hospital gave me some key advice that seemed a bit shocking at the time. They said, you've got to quit trying to think of God. You just have to focus on getting better. And they were not suggesting I give up my faith. They were just pointing out that my mind was in no condition to engage in higher-level contemplation. I conceded to myself that clearly my almost obsessive attempts to understand God's character and justice in that context were entangling me. And so I decided to relax as best I could and entrust myself to his ways, 
even if I could neither understand nor feel him. At that point, I began to picture him as the lifter of my head, as the song goes. Um, that's from Psalm 3.3. That's, that's been of comfort to me really ever since. Inside my, inside my head, I was experiencing emotional chaos, but I could trust that he was in control of the big picture. And I had no other choice but to trust, and it helped. In the next year, I wrote a song using another scripture that expresses the level of trust I believe God was calling me to, Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. And in Psalm 31, it's also been helpful. It reminded me that relative to my cycling moods, Christ is completely steadfast and that he suffered too and thus sympathizes with me fully. Another encouraging passage I found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. In my moods, I have definitely been perplexed and afflicted, stretched in every way, seemingly inexplicably, but in Christ I never have reason to despair. And this passage does give me a reason for my suffering. It's so that Christ's life can shine through mine. It's a reason that can only be glimpsed through eyes of faith. Sharon, years ago when we lost our son Mark, someone brought before us the passage out of Joel that talks about the locust and God makes a promise to us that he will restore to us the years that the locust has eaten. And you mentioned earlier in this interview that particular verse, and yet it continues by saying that great and mighty locust that I have sent. In other words, God is taking responsibility for sending that locust. Now, I'm not for one moment trying to say that God causes mental illness but we do live in a broken and fallen world. Our bodies are broken, our minds are broken, and yet he promises us something in that passage that when you're going through a time of utter darkness, it's hard to believe that that locust he has sent is something that he's going to give back to us in terms of the years that that locust eats. Uh, where are you today? Where are you in terms of the sovereignty of God today? It's not over. For me, I, I don't consider my struggles to be over, but I do understand that, that God has a plan for my life, and, and, uh, and it's not just an okay plan. It's not just a, a good plan, but it's a perfect plan. So I'm working to get to the point where I can fully accept that plan and not have questions of doubt and anger and bitterness over the path that, that our lives took, and, and it's certainly not what we planned to happen. 20 years ago when we got married and, and started a family. But I hope, along with Elizabeth, that there's uh, something at the other end of this. And, you know, it, it's 
occurred to me that maybe one reason that I'm here in this relationship and in this situation is that Elizabeth didn't have someone to love her growing up. And maybe my most important function in this life is to love her and support her and take care of her because she would not have any kind of way to use her special talents and gifts if she were struggling to make a living as a bipolar person. Not in her particular condition anyway, given the seriousness of her of her illness. So I don't know why the locust came, but I, I do know that in the end it will be great. I agree. We won't understand God's purposes until heaven, but I accept that I'm ill and... A lot of people don't accept it, but I accept it. That's how I can work to combat it. And as a woman of faith, I do believe everything comes through his hand. I take a lot of comfort in the fact that um, in the Bible, God says that he disciplines the one he loves um, and that sometimes God causes us to go through things that are difficult because he's teaching us what it means to rely on him. There's so many blessings that do come through suffering. Like my dad was saying, he's, he's looking forward to heaven and being with God um, so much more, I think, because of the suffering that he's experienced. We're also promised in the Bible, for we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And you know, that doesn't just mean the good things that we perceive to be good. It's not just the days that we say are great days in our lives. It's in all things, he's working for our good. And I also think of scripture in James 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. God isn't just putting us through these difficult things and just leaving us in our suffering. He walks alongside with us and promises to be a refuge for us and promises to reward us for the suffering that we've experienced in this life. And there's so much hope to be found in that. Nothing can take that away. Thank you for listening to this edition of our Learning to See When the Lights Go Out audio library. It is our prayer that what you have heard will help turn your heart toward Jesus, as well as equip you to offer help and hope to others. You can download or listen to more interviews like this when you visit www.markinc.org, M-A-R-K-I-N-C dot org. Or call us at 1-877-MARK-INC. Or if you choose, write to us at Mark Inc. Ministries, 2880 Summit Bridge Road, Bear, Delaware, 19701. Thank you again for listening. And remember that God is sovereign and you can trust him.